Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Rachel Lippman. Earlier this year, Missouri Chief Justice Zell Fisher announced major changes to the state's pretrial rules. Those govern bail, detention, and other practices and have direct impacts on citizens accused of a crime. The rules go into effect July 1st. Fisher calls the changes common-sense modifications to a system that too often treats defendants according to their pocketbooks instead of the law. The rules go into effect this coming Monday. We did invite both the presiding judges in St. Louis and St. Louis County to participate in this discussion. Both were initially interested and planning to be a part of this conversation, but decided to hold off on commenting on the new rules at present. So joining me in the studio to talk through these new changes and the implications are Peter Joy. He is the vice president for academic affairs at the Washington University School of Law, as well as the Henry Hitchcock Professor of Law and the director of the university's criminal justice clinic. Also joining me is Michael John Voss. He is the co-founder and special projects director for Arch City Defenders. Peter and MJ, welcome to both of you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Whoever wants to take this, what are some of the major changes that uh, defendants, uh, prosecutors, judges, etc. can expect from these laws when they go into effect? Well, I mean, the, the first major change is the new rules just basically codify what the existing law is, uh, and it's what judges really should have been doing. And I think that the Missouri Supreme Court has really spelled it out for judges with the hope that uh, judges will start to follow what the existing law does require. Uh, And and that is, uh, as your lead-in indicated, try to make our justice system not look at people in terms of do they have money and can they basically you know pay to be able to be presumed innocent uh, and to treat poor people the like regular human beings that deserve to have that presumption of innocence and be out awaiting trial, living their lives, being with their families, continuing their employment rather than being jailed and oftentimes losing their homes, uh, families breaking up, and certainly losing their jobs. MJ, let's get down into the weeds a little bit. What are some of the changes you noticed that will, as Peter said, turn this court more focusing towards the individual rather than the payment? Right. It's important to to repeat what what Professor Joy has just said, is that the law uh, required from the outset, the constitutional requirements about pretrial release were very clear if you look at the case law and the way that it's evolved over time. And and that requires judges to make certain findings if they're going to decide not to or, or what the conditions are going to be on release pretrial. Okay? And so Rule 33.01 and other the subsequent rules that have been changed, they existed prior. These are changes to them. and modifying them, making it more clear for the judges in terms of the steps that they have to follow when they're going to make a decision to detain someone and put some conditions on the release, especially if it's going to be monetary conditions on release, so a bond. If some of this was already law and laid out in the case law, why wasn't it happening before? Um, I think it's a part of a larger problem that we've been talking about regarding criminal justice in St. Louis, and that is the sort of lack of institutional accountability for why these systems make people poor and keep people poor. Uh, It's a form of social control, frankly. Um, The disproportionate number of people that are impacted by these practices uh, prior to them 
being changed are people of color in our region, poor people and people of color. And so I think it's essential for us to, to talk about it within that framework. Uh, why wasn't the law being followed? Well, uh, I'd have to say it's because of those larger systemic issues regarding how we perceive race and class in St. Louis and who's being impacted the most and are they going to be listened to. And frankly, uh, people have been complaining about these practices for years and it took litigation and these changes to the rules to actually have some, some forward movement. The question and the problem is, will these new rules actually be implemented and followed? Uh, we uh, knew that the law existed and, and supported the claims we brought in our litigation regarding the cash bail earlier this year. Um, and it was very clear that the practices in the courtrooms were not following the Constitution. They did not meet constitutional muster in terms of the inquiry that was needed and the findings of fact that were required of the judge if they were going to detain somebody and if they were going to put a condition, a monetary condition on release. Peter, what is the enforcement mechanism for this that may be different now that it is a rule versus law? Well, uh, so for example, uh, it, and I know Michael John will be able to talk about some pending litigation, but now that it's a rule, if a judge isn't following the rule, uh, you can seek enforcement. There could be a, a writ of mandamus to require a judge to actually make an assessment about the person being a flight risk or a danger uh, to the community rather than just making an assumption. Uh, so, you know, there'll be more enforcement mechanism, but there's also... Um, I guess one other thing uh, in response to the last question that you asked that I, I think uh, is important is, and this goes back to something again Michael John said, uh, there were and still are a lot of presumptions in our system. And so someone who's middle class and a judge might think, well, you know, a $5,000 10% bond, which would mean a person would have to put up $500, that, that's something that this person should be able to make without looking at the fact that, yes, if, if somebody is white and middle class, they're going to be able to make that bond in a minute. But if you're a person of color and you're poor and working a minimum wage job and living paycheck to paycheck, that $500 means not making rent in losing the apartment. And those same individuals before the same judges, and I saw this happen, you know, innumerable times, and Michael John and his lawyers probably have seen it too, a judge would take a look at the bond and you'd make an argument after the person's been in jail for four or five days to have it reduced. And maybe they would reduce it a little bit to a $2,500, 10% bond, but still 250 was too much. And then a month later, they eventually let the person out on their own recognizance. And during that time, they've lost their home, uh, they've lost their job, and they were no less a flight risk and no less a risk to society after spending a month in jail than they were the day they got arrested. Uh, and. And, you know, fortunately, uh, I've seen some changes in St. Louis County even before the, you know, these new rules have gone into effect. And I think that also reflects the importance that a prosecutor plays. Because if you have a prosecutor who's dedicated to upholding the law and enforcing the law evenly and across the board, that means they're going to be dedicated to making sure judges follow these rules. In fact, prosecutors should be objecting to judges who don't follow the rules. And if they're not objecting, then they're not doing their job. 
What was the process, if you know, by which Chief Justice Fisher put these rules into effect? I imagine it wasn't just him from his perch as the Chief Justice saying this is how it's going to happen. No, there's there's a committee that's appointed of <clears throat> by the Supreme Court of criminal defense lawyers, prosecutors, uh, who were on a committee that came up with these rules. Also, current sitting judges, both in, I think, in in St. Louis County and City Circuit were members of the committee. And so these are like best practices and more more clarification as to what a judge is required to do. Um, and, And also really outlining it, making it clear for the court when they're looking at conditions of release, when they're looking at someone who's a pretrial detainee, what the factors are in that person's life, right? And they have to make a meaningful inquiry into their ability to meet a bond if they're going to set it. They can't set a bond now that they cannot meet. Uh, Unfortunately, we still see this practice happening even with a lawsuit and injunctive relief ordered by the federal court. uh, And we have noted that there's people that are being set uh, bonds in which there are no inquiry in which their ability to pay has been made. And so even with the rule change, there's still the possibility for the court not to follow the rules and individual judges not to make the findings that is required of them. Were either of you surprised that it was Chief Justice Fisher who made this move and appointed this committee to really begin to focus on individual inquiry into pretrial conditions? Um, I wasn't. uh, And I think it's because all of the Supreme Court judges, including the Chief Justice, uh, have come to realize that there are some fundamental problems and that if we really want to have, you know, a criminal uh, justice system that is colorblind and doesn't consider money, that there need to be changes. And, uh, you know, there have been other changes that have been made uh, with other uh, former uh, chief justices of the Missouri Supreme Court that have been trying to change our system. And MJ, how about you? Did it surprise you at all that it was Chief Justice Fisher to make a move on that? Did you think it would have happened sooner or not with Chief Justice Fisher? No, it's usually the Chief Justice that will appoint this and have the issue the new rules. Um, I I think that there is a trend in the United States looking at criminal justice reform, looking at cash bail reform. And I think that the decision to investigate this and to come up with better rules, clearer rules, uh, and, and actually, you know, re-articulate what should have been known by the judges already, uh, that there needs to be clear process, due process afforded people that are going to be uh, possibly detained. Right. Yeah. Oh, uh, can ahead. I add one other thing? Absolutely. And there's another aspect to this uh, in, in terms of treating people the way they should be treated with the presumption of innocence. This is going to save across the state if the judges follow it millions of dollars because people aren't going to be sitting in jail uh, where costs to support them in jail, and they're going to be out, and if they have jobs, they're actually going to be paying taxes uh, and helping the economy. So, uh, you know, I, there's there's really an economic benefit to this, not just to the individuals who are accused, but to all of us and to society as a whole. If you have experience with Missouri's pretrial rules, we would love to hear your story. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can tweet us at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our conversation about Missouri's new pretrial rules with WashU law professor Peter Joy and Michael John Voss with Arch City Defenders. Do either of you gentlemen have a sense about how these new rules would kind of put Missouri on a spectrum as to how they treat defendants pretrial? 
Well, if they're followed, hopefully it'll improve our, our location on the spectrum. Um, you know, we, we are one of the more uh, carceral states in the United States in terms of the population that we have currently incarcerated, many of whom are pretrial. Uh, and in addition to that, we also are one of the states that are lowest in terms of funding adequate public defense, which actually would help reduce the number of people in jail. One of the things that, that was talked about earlier is like, when will someone be able to actually have a hearing pr prior to these rules and if these when these rules were not being followed? Uh, how long would it take for someone to get a hearing? Typically, four to five weeks, people would be sitting in jail before they could get their attorney, a public defender typically, to have a motion to reduce the bond. Uh, they'd be sitting that time in, in awful, horrible conditions at the workhouse typically. Uh, and and those that sort of suffering is unconscionable. People have not yet been convicted of anything, have been not found guilty of anything, and are presumed innocent under the law, but they are being treated as though they are some of the worst criminals on, on the planet. And yeah, I think it, that is an important point to emphasize, is that m these people have not been adjudicated in any way, shape, or form in a court of law. This is they are accused of a crime, and, and there's been no decision one way or the other to their guilt or innocence. Yeah, that's right. And, and also, in, in terms of your question about where does this put Missouri on the spectrum? Well, it puts Missouri the same way that all the federal courts have been dealing with this issue because the federal courts reformed themselves uh, some years ago now, and they've been adhering to this kind of an approach to not uh, uh, just put a high dollar bond on an individual, but to take a look at the real questions, which are a danger to society and a flight risk. Uh, and if those don't exist, then there's not a cash bond on the individual. And, and I agree in terms of what John Voss says about funding for the public defender system. Uh, we're typically around 48th and sometimes 49th. Uh, it, you know, it, it, the amount of dollars spent to defend a person on a serious felony case when you take a look at the salaries uh, the people are getting paid as public defenders, it would cost more to call a plumber out to your house to fix your toilet. Right, right. We're, we're, we're literally uh, 49th in terms of per capita spending. It's Mississippi and then us. Is there a way that these two things we talk about here, these new rules and the public defender crisis, end up worsening or benefiting each other? Obviously, with having 48 hours for hearings, or I think some of it is as soon as forthwith, you're going to need more public defenders. You're going to need more attorneys to be at these hearings. How do these, this is force the hand of the state to fund the public defender's office or? Um, well, so the, the, the people must be brought in front of a judge as soon as possible, 48 hours at the, at the length. But um, the, that initial appearance, usually there, there isn't a public defender they're representing because the person hasn't applied for it yet. You have to get, you have to apply and either be appointed one or you're not appointed one, you either accepted or rejected. Um, and so typically there isn't a lawyer representing that person on that initial appearance. Um, so the burden though shouldn't be on the person to prove why they should be released. The law actually presumes release. The burden is on the state and on the judges to make inquiry as to whether or not there should be any conditions regarding release. And one of those could be monetary bond. Um, but that's that's the problem is that, that if judges actually then begin that inquiry at the beginning and make a full finding, typically they're going to find that people can be released. And, and just to give you some statistics, during the period of time after the preliminary injunction was entered in by the federal judge, Judge Fleisig. And so uh, just to kind yeah. of reset for listeners here, we are talking about the Art City Defenders has a lawsuit against the city of St. Louis regarding its cash bail practices. Right. And a judge has ruled that individuals need to have these hearings that you're talking Correct. about. And her, her preliminary injunction basically outlines what will become in effect July 1st. And, and several hearings were held 
uh, during the time period of that injunction. It's subsequently been appealed and been stayed, but during the period that I'm talking about, which is June 12th to the 21st, there was, at least by our records, and we had lawyers and law students observing most of these hearings, not all of them actually uh, were provided notice of, but of 171 hearings, 119 people were released. 59 of them were released on their personal recognizance, 47 had an affordable bond that was posted, and 13 were just dismissed outright. There wasn't enough evidence in those people. Now, those people could have all been spending weeks and weeks and weeks, and some of them had spent months, if not years, in jail uh, awaiting trial. And so these are people that, on average, spent 93 days in jail. Combined, it was 11,149 days in jail. That means that the, typically it was roughly a combined uh, $2,123 million in bond that was reduced for all of those people. 42 of them were given no bond. Judges made findings in those cases. And 10, we think, were given an unaffordable bond that actually violates the rules. Now, how will the fact that these rules go into effect on July 1st and there is a stay on what is essentially these rules being ordered in St. Louis City, any sense as to how those two things are going to kind of square the circle or is it just you'll have to figure it out? Uh, I think I think we'll see as, as they move forward. I know that both uh, circuit judges have been planning on how they're going to approach the new rules. I don't think that they had planned in <laughs> advance far enough. These rules implicate the fact that people that are currently being detained, uh, right, that have had an initial bond set that is non-affordable, that it be reviewed within seven days. Uh, that was what part of this process was that I discussed. Um, this, this requirement, I believe, that the state is going to say isn't retroactive and doesn't apply to people currently incarcerated, which I think is a misinterpretation of the rule. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Michael John on that. Uh, to say that somebody sitting in jail doesn't get the benefit to this, in my view, would just be outrageous. In fact, anyone taking that position, you know, I, I question, uh, you know, whether they're suitable for, uh, you know, to be licensed to practice law, because these rules are aimed at basically having the Constitution followed when it comes to people charged with offenses. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that, I, that's really disturbing to think that, that uh, people sitting in jail are going to have to continue to stay there for months on end because these rules might be ignored. Right. We'd again like to invite our listeners into the conversation. If you have experience with Missouri's pretrial rules as an attorney, as a defendant, as the family of a defendant, we'd like to hear your story. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. You guys practice mostly, I think, in the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County. But to the best of your knowledge, how many of Missouri's circuit courts out there would likely not be in compliance with these rules on July 2nd? Well, I have about 30 interns I can have go out into the different jurisdictions <laughs> and find out. Um, we, we're, we're hopeful that the, that the courts follow these rules in good faith. We know that these abusive practices occur throughout the state and have occurred throughout the state in various circuits. Um, and, and I think it maybe behooves the public who's listening today to pay attention to their courts. Go to your local circuit court. Observe what's going on. These are your courts. They're there to protect you and to serve you. And so if there's violations occurring, 
you need to let the people, the, the Supreme Court know. And, and maybe some guidance from um, the presiding judge will be helpful regarding this retroactivity issue of the seven days. Yeah, that's right. And, and I can say that since the beginning of the year uh, in St. Louis County, the judges have been uh, moving in the direction of following these rules. Uh, not to say that uh, the last time I was there in, was in April, but I saw the judges who make these determinations uh, really having a different uh, approach. Uh, and I think also the prosecutor's office uh, with Wesley Bell's prosecutor, they've had a different approach too, which is encouraging. And, and um, you know, so I'm hopeful that that'll be at least one circuit that will be in full compliance. How important is the prosecutor? in this equation, since they are the ones who would be making a request for pretrial conditions, as I understand it. They're extremely important. Uh, And if they follow the rules, what they'll be doing is, uh, first of all, they'll ensure that summonses will be issued rather than arrest warrants, especially on misdemeanors. Uh, And that's, again, a, a change that I started seeing happening in the county since the beginning of the year. Um, But also what they'll do is they'll see this person really isn't a flight risk. This person uh, isn't a a real danger to society. And so they'll be uh, recommending personal recognizance. MJ, for someone who isn't an attorney but may want to say, hey, I'm curious to see if my court is is following these rules, are there things that they can look for or listen for that to a lay ear will kind of help them understand what is going on in the courtroom and whether or not it is in compliance? Sure. So, so first off, just look at the rule. Uh, it's Rule 33.01, Missouri Supreme Court rule. Um, And there's clear language in there in terms of what the judges need to be finding. So the court are supposed to base their determinations on any conditions regarding the circumstances of the defendant in the case. They need to look into account the nature of the charge. They need to look at the weight of the evidence. They need to make findings about family ties, employment, financial resources, uh, the mental condition of 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 the defendant. All of these things need to be put into a record, and the judge needs to be doing that in open court. And it should be uh, part of the record, recorded, and be able to be reviewed. Um, and those are the things that you'll want to look at and make sure are being found, uh, found by the courts. Also, there are uh, court-watching organizations out there uh, that they can be part of. Uh, there's a local group in St. Louis uh, that, that does training on that. And so if you go to um, closetheworkhouse.org, you'll see links to some of that training. Sheriff Dave Marshak of Jefferson County, he tweeted on Tuesday, this was two separate tweets, new pretrial rules July 1st will give criminals a free pass. Victims will be victims again because of the system. Bail reform has gone too far. Secondary tweet, four significant arrests in the last week. Suspects responsible for 45-plus combined burglaries, thefts, property damage, etc. They are considered nonviolent under new Missouri Supreme Court Rule 33.1. They will be roaming, stealing from you again. It's what they do. I have to imagine this is not an uncommon take in law enforcement. And I wanted to get your response first to, is this an accurate interpretation of 33.1? And then the sort of underlying sentiment to it. No, it, 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 it's that's fear-mongering is what that is. Um, the, these rules are trying to follow the Constitution that already, the, the law that had existed uh, under, under the Constitution. And so to, to state that uh, these these rules are going to force judges to release people is a complete fallacy. The, it forces judges to make a meaningful inquiry as to whether or not the person could or should be released. That is what it requires. And if judges actually do that, that's that's what that is the primary 
liberty interest we're talking about here, one of your primary interests, one of the things that the law enforcement officers are there to protect, right? And so if there's a, a system that fails people because it doesn't truly provide them the due process and the equal protection that they're entitled to under the Constitution, then then why bother having a police oh, department? Right, and, and, and taking the, the sheriff's statement, if you had somebody who had uh, a history of violent convictions uh, and was charged now with committing, you know, I guess divide him up six or seven burglaries, a judge following the rules is going to say, no, this person is a danger. And, and, you know, I mean, could make that finding. It would depend on other things. So let's say that same person uh, was now gainfully employed and had ties to the community and their last conviction was five years ago, the presumption of, of innocence and the rules might lead a judge to say, under these, these set of circumstances, I don't believe this person is a danger uh, to the community and would let the person out on their personal recognizance because just because you've been charged with an offense, even something like a burglary, doesn't mean you're guilty. All that means is that there's some reason that the police have to bring charges against you. Right. And, and it, and it, the process needs to play out and you can defend yourself better when you are released, especially if you're, if you're innocent. Many times people will plead guilty because they've been languishing in the workhouse for, for months, if not years. And it's, it's an opportunity to get out right then and there and they're going to take it even though it means that they're going to have a criminal record. Right. If you could give quick, you know, elevator advice to a judge who may be worried about getting it wrong and loading up on the conditions, what would be your, your elevator pitch to, you know, sort of slow down and not worry about that? Getting it wrong and letting the wrong person out, for example. Uh, I'd say follow the rules uh, and <laughs> remind yourself this person is presumed innocent. And if they follow what these factors are, they're going to be getting it right. And, and that means even if they let somebody out and that person does commit some other crime, that doesn't mean that they got it wrong if they follow what the rules say that they should do. Uh, because nobody controls a person. And, and the worst thing to do is to keep somebody locked up because you're fearful that they might commit a crime. Uh, that isn't the way our democracy is supposed to work. Peter, about 30 seconds, uh, sorry, MJ, about 30 seconds, what would you say? I would echo uh, what Professor Joy just said. I would, uh, I, I doubt that the, any of the judges want any advice from, from me or my organization at this point. But <laughs> what Same I would, goes for me. <laughs> what I would suggest is obviously read the rules, but understand that uh, the people being impacted the greatest by pretrial detention are uh, poor people and people of color. And I think a true accounting needs to be made as to that reality. And I think that um, the factors that are being outlined in these new rules will hopefully see a less uh, sort of a, a, a release of some of the pressure on local communities that are impacted by uh, the carceral state that we live in. Michael John Boss is the co-founder and special projects director at Arch City Defenders. Also joining him in studio today was Peter Joy, the vice dean of academic affairs at Washington University Schools Law, the Henry Hitchcock Professor of Law, and the director of the university's criminal justice clinic. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.